0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better
1: tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. A while back, there was a bridge that changed the world. It was between North and South America, built about three million years ago. And the architect was nature. For the first time, these two continents touched.
0: The Great American
1: Interchange is how it's sometimes grandly titled. Biologist Chris Thomas says that when that connection was made, everything that had once been true about the natural way of the world, at least in this neck of the woods, it changed.
0: Well, so there's a bunch of large mammals in North America that are feeding in a relatively dry continent, an open continent. And they moved down into South America and displaced a lot of the native species that used to exist there although when they the diversity still increased because although lots died out there were more arrivals than there were things that died out meanwhile giant ground sloths and armadillos and so on came in the opposite direction
1: Three million years later, nature is changing in a different but also profound way. And Thomas, who's a professor at the University of York in the UK, makes a provocative argument. For all the species that we're losing, there are winners. And on a warmer planet, exactly who will win may surprise us. Thomas is the author of the new book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction, and he admits that thinking about today's biological winners did not come easy to him, at least at first. Because
0: I was brought up very much on everything's declining, everything's sort of going to pot? What are we going to do to stop this? And and almost like the whole conservation movement's been about trying to reduce the rate of decline rather than trying to generate positive trends. But over many years as a biologist, what I've noticed is that a high proportion of all of the butterflies and sometimes birds that I've been studying have somehow managed to adjust to the new world. And I started to wonder, well, Maybe this isn't just a sort of fluke of the things that I have ended up studying. Maybe this is a more general phenomenon. And then in the literature, we're starting to get increasing the scientific publications. We're starting to see a lot more studies that are suggesting that it isn't just a single unitary story of decline. Yes, lots and lots of things are declining, and we might want to do something about this. But there are also lots of things that are increasing. And Mm -hmm. so there isn't this sort of inexorable, certain degradation.
1: Well, and one of the points you make is that 50 or 100 years ago, or maybe 200 years ago, is the point, you know, to which we may want to return things. But for thousands of years, things have been getting mixed up in what you might call completely unnatural ways, where you know, species from one part of the world were coming to another part. Do you want to talk about that? Like something that happened hundreds Mm. of years ago.
0: Yeah, and to some extent, the whole book can be summarised by the fact that I dug a hole in my garden. And the deeper I got, <laughs> the the deeper I got, the further I got back in history. And at the bottom of my hole, in fact, was an ice age, the deposits, the clay at the bottom of an ice age lake, um, mm. a metre and a bit down. And then there was on top of that, there's a bunch of sand, which was actually an ancient sand dune, which had mammoths and woolly rhinoceros running over it. and then was a forest and then there were pastures and now there are new species coming in with climate change so the challenge is that which species are present at any particular location so so if you like on any frame of the world on a particular moment it looks one way but it changes through time and that isn't a threat to the biological diversity of the planet, it's actually how the biological diversity works and survives through periods of environmental change. It's always been this way. They move to where conditions are now suitable for them and they die out in places where that's no longer possible. And as humans now change the environment right across the planet, the same thing is happening. There's lots and lots of species shifting into new areas, into our gardens, into our suburban parks, into our farmland, into our partly disturbed forests, and throughout the world, wherever we change the climate. This is all part of the biological response to humanity and the absolutely certain perturbation that we're causing In the planet, but trying to resist these changes as somehow deviation from how the planet should be doesn't sit with the fact that every ecological evolutionary process we know about is to do with the dynamics of birth and death and movement. In other words, the dynamics of change.
1: Do we have yet a sense of whether climate change is thinning the ranks? of these species, or is it producing more species? What is climate change doing? So climate
0: change as a driver is undoubtedly going to reduce the number of species on the planet, and that's because there's lots of animals and plants are like some frogs that used to live at the top of Monteverde in Costa Rica, which got hit by a combination of disease and a warming climate and El mm. Niño current. And so these very localized species can get knocked out by a single extreme climatic event. Mm. And most of the predictions are suggesting that for the sort of climate change that we are on heading for, Well, perhaps again, an order of magnitude thing that of the order of perhaps 10% of species might be threatened with extinction Hmm. as a consequence of the climate change. They're mostly going to be these quite localized species. Now, that's a really serious thing. And um, we should try and slow down the rate of climate change as fast as we possibly can as a global community. However, the silver lining, as it were, is that the warmest and wettest parts of our planet actually have the highest diversity. And of course, the climate's getting a bit warmer on average. Hmm. And it's actually getting a little bit, although we're getting some big droughts, it's also getting slightly moister on average. And that's hmm. simply a bit of physics, that when the Earth is warmer, more water evaporates from the ocean. So more, more goes up, more comes down. Hmm. So the land gets a little bit damper. So on average, you expect this to slightly increase the diversity per square mile or whatever Of the land. And there's some indication, at least at the higher latitudes um, in the sort of far north of North America and Europe, that this is indeed happening, that local diversity is actually going up a bit because of the warming. More species are arriving than disappearing.
1: Are there species that you've been really impressed with how they've adjusted to, I don't know, people? you know, cutting their forests or things getting hotter or the world getting more urban, like things you would think not good for animals, but some animals are doing great.
0: Well, lots of animals are doing great. It's quite remarkable, actually. But if we keep on the climate change angle for a minute, I'm lucky I have a a couple of small meadows and I have a butterfly species that lives in that meadow that only arrived a few years ago and it's spread northwards by nearly 200 miles Hmm. and it's done so by changing its diet so it now feeds on a species of plant that's really quite common in the disturbed British countryside and so it's moved away from its historic habitat and has been able to expand its distribution very quickly indeed and in fact if you look around you anywhere that you are you'll see that the species that you've got in front of you, the trees, the birds and so on, they've come from all over the world often. And these are great success stories. You know, you've got sparrows around you that started off in a small area of Asia and are Hmm. now one of the world's most widespread species. And it's, we kind of... Somehow resent them and don't like them necessarily because we sort of, you know, we, we like a plucky loser, but. but, but <laughs> How but about a, a sp- plucky winner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the sparrow might just be that.
1: Do you worry that um, the things that we are doing could potentially sow the seeds for long term? Losing, you know, by humans. That that humans are changing things, but not necessarily for the long term for their own good, you know, to continue.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And quite a number of biologists have thought about this, that there may be a sort of time delay between when we do things and set things and train and when all of the consequences are felt. And undoubtedly there are species that have been restricted to small parts of the planet that might be going to die out in the long run even if we do nothing else bad to them. On the other hand we do know that you know all around us we have species living in all of our farmland, our urban areas and so on, which come from various parts of the world and add to that local diversity. It is equally valid to suggest that there may be a big colonisation lag. In other words, we've changed the world, but all the species that are eventually going to live in this new world haven't yet got to the places where they're going to be able to thrive. Hmm. So there could be very large potential positive gains as well as future negative
1: ones. So how do you think we should think about conservation and conserving our environment if, as you say, we've been in flux for millions of years, so it's hard to know exactly maybe what to conserve or what you know date we want things to be like, like 1960, like 1860, like 1760, and so on?
0: Well, uh, as I said, ecology and evolution are about change and uh, we know the history of the last uh, few hundred years to thousands of years of human impact and then we go back over the last million years. It's been just an ongoing story of change. So keeping things as they are is clearly not the option. And if we try to do so, eventually, uh, whether it's um, a few years, a few decades or a few centuries, from now, or even a few millennia, we will have failed. And then we ask, well, why were we putting all of this effort in, in the first instance? So what I think is particularly important is, funnily enough, it's almost like an old fashioned approach to conservation, is that I'm suggesting that we need to turn our attention to the species that are threatened and Mm -hmm. try and save at a global level as many of those as is possible. Not to keep the world as it is now, but because of having as many species of different types on the planet as possible effectively provides the biological system with the flexibility to respond to whatever it is that we do next to the mm. planet. And we have no idea what that's going to be. And some of those things are going to turn out to be useful to us. And we don't know which they're going to be at the moment.
1: So it does make sense to try to preserve pandas in Asia it does or zebras in Africa or whatever.
0: It does indeed. There may be cases you say, well... What am I doing here? Mm -hmm. I'm taking on a forever challenge. It ain't going to work. OK, maybe I should give up on Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. one. But that should only be after a period of um, considered reflection and thought that this is the only realistic option. And because we're forever um, developing new biological techniques, for example, in genetic modification or whatever, is entirely feasible that we may be able to solve in the future some challenges that we can't. And so maybe hanging on to things for a bit because we might be able to have a long-term solution in future could be a decent strategy.
1: Do you feel like colleagues uh, have responded or or the public has responded to your work in a positive way? Have they taken it as, in some ways, a provocative argument, which is like, let's look at the other side of, as you said, that we're heading downwards all the time in an inevitable spiral to the bottom?
0: I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some people see me as trying to undermine the story of biological loss, but I'm not saying that there's no biological loss at all. I'm just saying there's biological gains as well. And it's a as legitimate to think about those gains as it is the losses and when it comes to conservation then for every time we're thinking about how do I stop a loss you could also turn to the side and think are there any potential additional gains I could achieve here as well and it's an as well strategy rather than an instead.
1: Chris Thomas is an ecologist at the University of York. He's the author of the book Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. Chris, thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much indeed.
1: If you like what you heard here, subscribe to our newsletter to get the inside scoop on what's coming up on the show. Just go to innovationhub.org. That's where you also find stories that explore why you can't stop checking Facebook and why America might want to consider mandatory voting.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.